All right, Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Didactic Mind, episode 61, One Bright Star to Guide Them. May the peace and blessings of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for taking the time to tune in um, on or after Christmas Day. Uh, for me, it is Christmas, a uh, very happy Christmas. Uh, certainly the best Christmas I can remember in quite some time, actually. And uh, I wish you uh, and all of your families a most blessed and peaceful Christmas, for this is indeed the birthday of our Lord and King, uh, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And uh, I'm truly blessed and, and delighted to be sharing uh, this day with you. And I, I, I am truly grateful to you for uh, taking the time to tune in, as I said. If you are one of my long-time readers, many thanks. You are always welcome uh, to my podcast and to my site. Uh, if you are one of my Podbean subscribers, uh, very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you for tuning in. If you are new to either my site or to Podbean, uh, please make sure you hit that subscribe button. Make sure that you are um, subscribed and that you never miss another video. Uh, excuse me, another podcast. I don't do videos. Uh, I may do someday, but I'm not about to start now. Um, and um, always make sure you uh, hit that subscribe button, whether it's on my site or on Podbean itself. Um, that way you will never miss another Didactic Mind episode or another Domain Query episode. Uh, and if you like what I have to say, then be sure to hit the like button, be sure to share um, on other sites via social media if you wish, and uh, make sure to tune in regularly, because I do do this, uh, I try to make a weekly habit of doing this podcast, and I think it's been pretty effective so far. We have, The podcast has been running for over a year, and uh, we've had some great episodes. Um, I remember with particular pleasure the 50th episode of this podcast, which was not that long ago, it was about three months back. And uh, that was from that was done with um, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Crapman. Uh, it was a very, very special guest episode and uh, really stands out in memory as uh, a superb interview. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Crapman was a most gracious guest. And, of course, uh, the previous interview with uh, Dawn Pine, which dates back to the very earliest days of this podcast, you know, episode 15, basically, uh, it was an interview with the male brain uh, over in Israel. And to my friends over in, um, in Israel, uh, Shalom and Happy Christmas. I know you guys don't celebrate it. Uh, if you're Jewish, you don't celebrate it, but so be it. Um, for those of you who are in the West, uh, once again, very, very Merry Christmas to you. And for those of you uh, who are in Russia, well, uh, what can I say other than uh, uh, very, very happy Christmas. I know you don't celebrate Christmas on this exact day, but uh, you will be soon. Uh, the, the great thing about being an Orthodox Christian is you kind of get to celebrate Christmas twice um, because the, Chris, the, the, the Christmas tradition um, is the, the dates are odd and I actually broke down the, the reasoning behind the dates for Christmas in a Domain Query episode which goes back some way 
Um, a Christian brother, John C911 over in Australia, I remember asked me this question. Uh, or it may have been Kapios, I forget exactly. But it, the, the, the domain query episode is called It's a Saturnalia Miracle. And it deals with this issue of when was the Christmas date set? And the question was, um, or oh, I should say the long-standing rumor, the long-standing belief has been for some time, actually, that Saturnalia, uh, the pagan Roman festival of Saturnalia, is the template on which Christmas is based. And the Roman Emperor Constantine set the date for Christmas to coincide with Saturnalia so as to ensure that his Roman subjects would be more tolerant of and accepting of this new faith. Well, that's simply not true, because in Constantine's time was held the Council of Nicaea, or Nicaea, uh, however you pronounce it. I, I think Nicaea is, the, Nicaea is the correct pronunciation. Nicaea, you know, uh, Nike or Nike in Greek is victory, and Nicaea was the site of victory. So, um, I think the, the second pronunciation is probably correct. But anyway, the, the conclave of Nicaea was held in 325. However, we have uh, evidence going back to the time of Tertullian in about 200 AD, which, uh, when you calculate the dates back, indicates that the Christmas tradition was held by Christians at the time during times of very severe persecution by the Romans um, in late December, around December 25th, actually. And here's the reason for that. The date of our Lord's crucifixion is believed to be the same as the date of his birth. Uh, at the time, back in sort of 33, 30, 30 to 33 AD, whenever it was, that was about what we would call today um, March 14th. Uh, the Feast of the, the Annunciation was set at about March 14th. Now, once you calculate that forward in the Gregorian calendar, that comes to December 25th. So that has been the fixed date for um, our Lord's birth, according to the Catholic and Protestant calendars ever since. The Orthodox calendar moves differently because they never switched to the Gregorian cal calendar system. They always stayed with the Julian system. So, um, for them, their idea of Christmas is set to exactly, and I mean literally exactly, nine months to the day of the Feast of the Annunciation, which is the day of the Immaculate Conception by um, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, the point of all this is that you should not be distracted from your faith if you are a Christian by what other people think of it. This day is our day. This day is your day. This day is the fulfillment of a promise. This is the day on which we acknowledge the greatest miracle that has ever befallen mankind in all of our long and terrible history. And if you look back through the history of man's relation to man, it is a history of brutality, war, repression, terror, absolutely horrific acts of barbaric violence, uh, suppression, murder, 
destruction, robbery, rape, pillaging, and on and on and on. I mean, every single crime you can think of, and a few besides that we have in our sick and twisted imaginations invented over the years, has been perpetrated by men against other men, and by women against other women, and by men against women, and by women against men. We as a species are extraordinarily good at committing acts of savage brutality against each other. And we do so because we are trapped in a world of sin. We are stuck in enemy territory. We do not rule over this world. It's important to understand that. We think we deceive ourselves into believing that we rule over this world, that we are the masters of the material universe. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are deluded into thinking that we are masters of the material realm, when in reality we only control the material realm, and even then not particularly well. In fact, we think we control the material realm and are totally naked, helpless, and alone in the spiritual realm. And that is where the really nasty stuff happens. The thing to understand is that the power that rules over this world is an immortal, psychopathic, prideful, evil liar who takes great joy, perverse pleasure, and intense satisfaction in our pain and misery. And he does everything in his power, which is enormous, to increase our uh, brutality and barbarity against each other. And he is hugely successful at that. Why? Because man is fallen. We are in our own right, in our own, or at least by ourselves, I should say, on our own. We are not capable of formulating any kind of moral creed or perfection without resorting to some higher power. It's not possible for us. If a man comes up with a moral code, another man can come along and supplant it or pretend that uh, it can be modified. Because there is no point in, in adopting the code of a man. A mere man is just a mortal. He can be killed. He can be destroyed. He can be shamed. He can be humiliated. Every man has his weak point, his pride. Uh, he has his own preferred brand of sin. Uh, he can be exposed and ridiculed. He can, he can be torn down. A man is nothing more than a man. But once you resort to calling upon something higher than men, something beyond the mere mortal understanding of men, that is when morality becomes sacred and becomes impossible, unimpeachable, uh, impossible to attack. That is what our enemy seeks to stop us from doing. And that is why uh, he has taken such pride over the last many thousands of years in attacking us and making us attack each other. And he does, th he does so through incredibly insidious and powerful means and instruments. This day, Christmas Day, is the day in which our Lord, our God, gave us the way out. 
for thousands of years, our God was content with giving us the chance to obey him according to a rules-based rubric. He was content with letting us show our faith through works and through obeying the laws that he had put in front of us and that his chosen people, the Israelites, were supposed to take to the rest of mankind, but they didn't. They failed repeatedly in their duty. They failed to do the tasks that God had set for them. That's the entire story of the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament goes basically like this. God says, don't do X. If you do X, I will do Y. I will punish you with Y. The Israelites say, okay, God, we won't do X. Then the Israelites go and defy God and do X. God says, I told you, if you did X, I would punish you with Y. He spanks them with Y. The Israelites repent and regret bitterly and prostrate themselves before the Lord and say, please stop doing Y. We take it back. We were wrong. You are Lord. We're sorry. God, because he is infinitely merciful, infinitely loving, infinitely generous, says, okay, I'll give you another chance. And the entire cycle starts all over again. That's about 3,000 years worth of history, pretty much, you know, summarized in a nutshell. Um, Then God changes the rules. Now, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. None of us should, because it's God's game. It's his rules. God basically got sick of us making a hash of things and refusing to obey his will uh, through works. So instead of um, trying to get us to solve our own problems, he solved them for us. That's essentially what Christ's birth signifies. Christ's birth is not about granting wishes. It's not about getting presents, although that's a big part of it. There's, there's a reason why gift-giving is such an integral part of Christmas. Christ's birth is not about um, any kind of wish fulfillment, although there is an element of that in the story. Christ's birth is about one thing, the salvation of mankind. And if that's too esoteric for you, I want you to think about it this way. Christ's birth is about your salvation. Yes, you, personally. You. You, whoever you are, were saved because this child was born into the world. Um, this is astonishing and remarkable and doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. It doesn't make sense if you think about it in purely human terms. It literally, it, it, it doesn't compute. How is one man supposed to take upon himself all the, the evil of the world and redeem it? It's not possible. The late, great Nabil Qureshi put it very well, Dr. Nabil Qureshi. Uh, he was, he, he was talking, he was uh, telling the story of his uh, conversion to Christianity. And he was talking about how the idea of one man paying for the debts of every man, the sins of every man, makes no sense. It would be as if, you know, this was back when Barack Hussein Odufus was in power. And he said, 
suppose I went up, it, it's it, the, the idea of Christ taking all of mankind's sins upon himself and, and dying for me made about as much sense as me going up to Obama and saying, Obama, I know the national debt is a huge problem. We're up to like $17 trillion or whatever it is by now. Um, here's a dollar. Well, let's call it even. That's ridiculous. Yes, it, it is ridiculous. It's not possible for one man to take the sins of the world upon himself. It's, it's nonsense. Unless that man is God. Unless that man is also God. And that's what Jesus was and is. He is Lord. He is God. So that's what today is about. It's about your salvation. It's about finding joy and grace in an event that eclipses all other miracles. And it's about rejoicing in the fact that our God made his presence known in a world covered in sin. This was a solution that only God could come up with. No one else could come up with this. Because think about it. The world as we have it today is something that God cannot stand to be around. God cannot stand to be around sin. He says so. I mean, he makes that extremely clear. He cannot tolerate being around sin. So God is not able to communicate with us directly in a way that we would understand because we are sinful and we are fallen and we are broken. So he can't fix us unless we ask him to, but he can't be around us to fix us. Therefore, how can he possibly heal us? The only way for him to do it is to manifest himself here on earth, but to do so, he would have to take on human form, and that is flesh, that is matter, and that is susceptible to corruption. So how does he do this? How does he solve this problem, this intractable problem that cannot be resolved by the minds of men? How is he supposed to take a broken and fallen creation and pull it back to himself without sacrificing the one attribute that he prizes above all else, and that is free will. God so loves matter, and he so loves free will, that he is willing to endure all of the misery and all of the horror of mankind simply to give us the chance, the opportunity to come back to him of our own free will. How does he solve this problem, though? Because given our own free will, we're not going to come back to him because sin is tempting. It's, it's pleasurable. If sin wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. I mean, it's like, it's, duh, right? If drinking was not pleasurable, we wouldn't drink, and we wouldn't drink to excess. If sex was not pleasurable, we wouldn't seek sex, and we wouldn't engage in sex to excess. Um, if, well, what else? If gambling didn't flood our brains with dopamine when we succeed, we wouldn't pursue gambling, and we wouldn't pursue it to excess. If the exercise of raw naked power did not stir something in us that is pleasurable, that is enjoyable, that gives us rewards, we wouldn't do it. Obviously. I mean, these are obvious things. So how did God solve this problem? How did he square these impossible circles? He did it by performing a miracle that only he could perform. He came down to earth in human form so that he could understand 
our problems from a divine perspective. He could, it's, I mean, how, how does a, how does a deity who can know everything that he wants to know? I, I don't believe in an omniscient God, by the way. I don't believe that that's the case. There are instances in the Bible, if you read carefully, you'll find there are instances in the Bible where God is surprised and God is amazed and God is, um, taken aback by and God changes his mind due to certain events. Um, that is not an omniscient God. That, however, that does not contradict the idea that God sees everything. I think Vox Day's, our beloved and, and our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, Vox, De peace be unto him, Vox Day's, um, understanding of things is, is much better. What he says is God is, uh, volitiant, meaning he sees what he wants to see. He knows what he wants to know. So, a very difficult concept to wrap your head around, but it's an interesting idea, and I think it probably applies. But anyway, how can a God who knows everything about the human heart, and that's the key, God does, God does not claim exactly to be omniscient, but he does claim to know everything about the human heart. How can a God who knows everything about the human heart, and yet can perceive a day as long as a century and a century in the span of a day, how can he possibly relate to us as humans? The answer is he can't because he doesn't have a human side until he came down to earth in flesh. And that is the miracle of Christmas. God came to us in blood and animal shit, in the midst of a manger, in, you know, the most subversive way possible. He completely subverted expectations by giving us a miracle, the birth of a king, the king of kings, in the most humble way possible, the most humble circumstances, the greatest miracle ever perceived in the most lowly place possible. That should tell you something about what kind of a God we have. I want to come back to this idea of Christmas as a uh, as a season for gift giving. It is, and there's a reason for that. We were given the greatest gift of all on this day. We were given the gift of freedom, everlasting life, on this day. And it's ours to take. It's ours to accept of our free will. And there's a price to pay for it. Don't ever think that this comes for free. This gift comes at a terrible price. And I can say that having paid it and continuing to pay it, the, this gift that you get comes at the price of cutting yourself off from the world as you know it. You will at times pit yourself against the ones you love the most. They will hate you. They will be angry with you. They will not understand you. They will not be able to see the world as you see it. They will think you're weird. They will think you're crazy for saying the things you say and believing the things you do. It's a very heavy price to pay. It comes at a terrible cost, but it's worth it. This is a price that you should pay because what you get from it is so much greater than what you pay for it. That's where the tradition of gift giving really comes from. It comes from the gift that we were given by our God on this day. And this is where I have a serious bone to pick with a lot of churchans, with a lot of um, 
progressive Christians. This is something that makes me like frothing at the mouth angry because I listen to these people, I mean, if I can stand to listen to them, which I generally can't, talking about how God is so loving and kind and tolerant and he just loves everyone and he, he's, he's forgiving of everything and he's your daddy. He's never going to let anything bad happen to you. He's never going to prevent, uh, he's, he's never going to let any harm come to you. Bullshit. Bullshit. Don't, 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 don't waste my time. Don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. These people who, who espouse this philosophy need to be straight up jap slapped. I mean, this is such a, a heinously stupid argument that the only way to deal with it is to beat the stupid out of people. And that's exactly what they deserve. For, for advocating a philosophy like that. That is not our God. That is not who Jesus Christ is. I challenge you, if you are a progressive Christian and you believe this nonsense about how, uh, either about how God is all loving and all kind and always forgiving and no matter what you do, uh, you can, you know, there are no eternal consequences for your actions. There's no, there's really no hell. Um, God would never, ever condemn anyone to hell. God would never, ever uh, be so horrid and evil and nasty as to cast a soul down to hell. He wouldn't do that. He's too nice. What the heck kind of a God are you listening to? I have an English Standard Bible, an English Standard version of the Bible, sitting by my bedside. I challenge you, if you are this kind of churchin, open up your Bible and show me where is this Jesus? Show me where is this God that you talk about. That is not my Jesus. That is not my God. That is not yours either. Don't waste my time with this bullshit. Because that's not who he is. That's not who God is. That's not what this day is about. Let me tell you what our God is. Let me tell you what our Jesus is like. Yes, he is named Emmanuel, Prince of Peace. Yes, he came to bring and restore order to this world. Yes, he died on the cross to restore our freedoms. He died to save you, specifically you. Not all of mankind, although he did. You. You, particularly you. He gave himself up so that you could live free of sin. Does that sound to you like a meek and calm and rational God who just forgives everything, a philosopher? Or does that sound to you like uh, somebody who would just, you know, live and let live? Does that sound to you like a detached, zen-like creature, like a Buddha or a, uh, well, basically a Buddha um, is, I think, the best way to put it, somebody who's just completely unattached to everything? Or does that sound to you like a God who so loved you and so cared about you that he took upon himself the worst of tortures, the most terrible of pain for you? That to me sounds like a loving God, a, a truly loving God. But it also sounds to me like a hard God. 
a hard man. And that is who our God is. That is who Jesus is. That is what he is. If you read the Bible, I mean really read it, if you really try to understand it, you'll see that Jesus Christ was a hard man. He preached a very difficult philosophy. I mean, all you have to do is, is open up to the, the teachings about um, divorce. What did Jesus say about divorce? Uh, you have heard it said that, uh, uh, you know what, I'm not, I don't want to misquote this, so let me go and look up the exact passage, which is, I believe, in Matthew. Uh, where is it, where is it, where is it? Uh, something, something, coming to the needy, death of John the Baptist, uh, teaching about divorce, Matthew chapter 19. Okay. Matthew chapter 19. Go read it. Matthew chapters, uh, chapter 19, verses 3 to 12. Yeah, 12. Go read it. Does that sound to you like a man trying to teach an easy philosophy? The people who were around him said, this is a hard teaching. Who, who among us, who, uh, who among us can possibly get married? Uh, this, Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like, wow. Um, what else did, you know, there's another one uh, that said, uh, basically, the, 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 the parable or the, the story of the rich man. It is, uh, truly I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound to you like a man preaching an easy take it as you take take what you want philosophy, like Hinduism? That's what Hinduism is. I mean, at its core, it is, there are teachings of Hinduism that are difficult and challenging. You know, concepts of like uh, uh, dharma, which is duty, effectively. That is a hard teaching, but too many Hindus, most Hindus, um, kind of have this very much pick and Take what you want, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's a very syncretic religion. And you just form your own personal philosophy out of it. And your relationship with this very impersonal creator force, um, that's your relationship with God. It's not really a personal direct link with a God who loves you, with the God, with somebody who intercedes for you, with Jesus Christ. It's not a walk with Jesus. It's not like that. It's a very impersonal relationship, and it's a very, uh, very incorrect attitude towards spiritually and morality. Spirituality and morality, excuse me. Jesus was a hard man teaching a hard way, and he said so repeatedly, and that's the reason why Christianity is so unpopular. I mean, real Christianity is so unpopular because what you are taught stands in direct opposition to everything you want to do by yourself. The world teaches you that it's okay to sin, that it's good to express yourself, that it's fine and dandy to experiment with whatever you want. You want to take experimental drugs? You want to change your brain chemistry through weed or alcohol? Hey, sure, no problem. Go ahead. It's not not really harmful. You want to try cocaine? You want to do heroin? Okay. It's 
it's up to you. You're an adult. You're free to make your own choices. And yes, you are. You are free to make your own choices. That's true. You want to um, pursue flesh. You want to have sex with as many women as possible. That's fine too. Go ahead. Do it. Everybody's doing it. If, you, if you're a woman in particular, why should men have all the fun? You know, go ahead and fornicate as much as you want. Don't be loyal to any one particular man. You can wait for that in, the, in your 30s. Yeah, you, you've got time. Have your fun. Sleep around. Be happy. This will make you happy. Um, the consequences for having sex outside of marriage are low anyway, because we have the pill, we have contraception, um, we have lots of preventative measures. Uh, and if you, if by any chance you are made uncomfortable by any man you're with, well, that's okay. You can destroy his reputation in his life. That's no problem. He's, you deserve to be whatever woman you want to be. And for men as well. I mean, if you want to chase as much, uh, as much physical pleasure as you want, that's fine. It's your life. Go ahead. Because women, um, are stupid. Women are clueless. Women are this. Women are that. Um, women are just objects to be pursued. That's the message that the world gives us. And far too many of us fall for it. Most of us fall for it at one time or another. I certainly did. Uh, in various measures. What does Christianity teach? Christianity says you will restrict yourself to one woman. She will be your wife. You will honor her above all others. You will value her above all others. If you even so much as look at another woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. To a woman, it says, you will, you will cherish your husband and you will honor him as your superior. You will submit to him. You will uh, submit to his guidance and his headship. This is radical. I mean, this, this teaching is astonishingly hard because this is exactly what men and women don't want to do. This is exactly what they don't want to, to, to go through. And yet, that's what Christianity says you have to do. So what do you do? Either you reject it or you pretend like you accept it. And, you know, there are... Um, there are a couple of different points of view. I mean, I'm reading C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity right now, and I know a lot of people have a, uh, some problems with uh, Clive Staples Lewis's theology. Um, I, you know, I don't, I, I really try to avoid getting involved in such food fights because, number one, I'm not a theologian. I think that theologians in general um, have a way of twisting scriptures to mean the exact opposite of what they actually meant. And number two, I really do see it as just a food fight. In the same way that I see the differences between Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Protestants as mostly food fights. I mean, not entirely. There are some very substantive, substantial differences in doctrine and ideas which I think are essential. And I think the Catholics, as much as anybody else, are guilty of going way wrong. Um, uh, the, the the Catholic uh, emphasis on the Blessed Virgin Mary, for instance, as being an intercessor before God, uh, I think is mistaken. And that's nowhere in the Bible does does make that clear. Nowhere does it say that this is the case. Um, we honor the the Blessed Virgin, the Blessed Mother Mary, above all women. Yes, absolutely. 
because she gave birth to our Lord, and she she was and is a symbol of purity, fidelity, love, and devotion. And these are wonderful, wonderful things. She is the model um, upon which we want our women to to mold themselves. This is a very good thing. But our intercessor before our God is Jesus, not not the Mother Mary. So you know, the Catholic insistence on this, to me, doesn't make sense. But again, I mean, look, it really is a bit of a food fight. So again, I try to avoid it. Um, but one of the things that C.S. Lewis says in uh, the later chapters, in, in part four of his book, has to do with uh, these two very significant contrasts in how Christians view sin. On the one hand, you have people who say, well, it's better never to sin, or at least, um, you know, to do more good deeds than bad deeds. Well, yeah, but then you've, released, you've reduced Christianity down to a religion of works, which it is not. It's a religion of faith. Uh, your faith drives your works. It's not like Hinduism or Islam or even um, modern-day Judaism, which these are works-based faiths where if you do certain things in a certain way at a certain time and you do more good things than you do bad things according to a prescribed moral code, then you will go to, excuse me, you will go to some kind of uh, better place, heaven. Or, or you will liberate yourself from an eternal cycle of death and rebirth and so on and so forth. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity works by saying, God paid the price for your sins once and for all. It's wiped clean, but you have to accept that price. You have to pay, you have to accept that God did this for you, and now you have to aim to be worthy of that sacrifice. That's what it actually says. You must do your best to be worthy of the sacrifice that God made, and you will never be truly worthy, but it's the effort that you make in trying to be worthy that makes you, cleans you up, that, that makes you a better and more admirable person, that makes you happier, and more decent and more kind to other people. Not because you yourself are a different person. You're still the same physical shell. You're still the same. You still have the same soul, the same experiences. But now you have a spiritual connection with something much, much bigger than you. And that thing that's bigger than you is entering you and it's cleaning you out from the inside and it's making you want to be better. That's what it is. That's the Christian doctrine. And that's what makes it so important. The other end of the extreme, uh, the other extreme end of the scale, is when C.S. Lewis talks about um, the people who say, well, you know, just carry on sinning. Because all you have to do is, is, is say, well, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord at the end of your life, and then you're all good. Uh, that's, that's a really stupid way of looking at it, too. Um, that is abomination. And the reason it's abomination is very simple. If you think that, then you are essentially reducing Jesus' sacrifice down to a philosophical question. Just a, it's not even faith anymore, it's just, a, it's just an issue of philosophy. Did he do it or didn't he? That's it. That's all it is. You don't have any faith, actually. The faith is what acts upon you and what you use to act upon yourself to push yourself to be better. To give when it hurts to give to preach even though 
you make enemies in preaching, to stand up for the truth even though it costs you terribly to do so. And that's the point. That's the truth about Christianity. As for the churchans who say that, again, you know, excuse me if I go into bile-spitting mode um, soon, because I probably will. Um, for those Christians who say that uh, Jesus was always meek and always kind and always loving, I'm sorry, what Jesus are you talking about? Show me this Jesus. I can go to chapters in, I can go to verses and specific passages in the Bible, and I can show you a Jesus who called the Pharisees and the Sadducees whitewashed tombs and a nest and a, a brood of vipers and uh, empty sepulchres and, uh, you know, just every hypocrites and fools and liars. I can point to a Jesus who walked into the temple in Jerusalem, fashioned a whip out of cords, threw over the tables on which gamblers were making bets in the, in the midst of his father's temple, and thrashed them and chased them out. I can look at a Jesus who preached incredibly hard teachings and made mortal enemies out of the priests of his time. I can point to a Jesus who said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Why was this so, such a remarkable statement? I mean, if you go back to, you know, uh, Gospel of John, what did he say? Uh, where was he? Where was he? Uh, uh, I and the Father are one. Um, and there's another one, you know, there's, there's another passage in there basically about uh, Abraham. I am the resurrection and the life. He raises Lazarus. Um, you know, th this, is, this is somebody who says, uh, who makes it very clear in the gospel with the highest Christology, the gospel with the most important and powerful depiction of Jesus Christ, as somebody who um, simply would not back down in the face of hatred. This is somebody who would not tolerate lies and would not allow other people to twist and manipulate the scriptures. He wouldn't do it. Um, what exactly was this Jesus? This was a fighter. This was a warrior. This was somebody who just would not let go of something vitally important. So, you know, here, here he is, um, John 8. Uh, he, he actually says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, he says, you are of your father the devil. Holy crap. I mean, you look at that through 21st century eyes and you think, wow, that guy's being a bit confrontational. Try looking at it through first century rabbinical eyes. Listen to, I mean, listen to this passage, you know, eight, uh, chapter uh, 8, 48. Uh, John chapter 8, verse, verses 48 onwards. The Jews answered him, 
Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego e me, in Koine Greek. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I'm not a Greek scholar, but that's what I've heard it transliterated as. Why, you know, from, from again, from 21st century perspective, this is like, well, that's a bit weird. I mean, he's basically claiming to be God, and he's claiming that he existed before Abraham existed. Now try to cast yourself 2,000 years back in time and look at this passage through 1st century rabbinical eyes. This is the kind of thing that makes priests tear their robes and scream in anger and frustration and say, you have blasphemed against God. You have claimed to be God. Why? Because what name does Jesus call himself by in John chapter 8, verse 58? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Go back to Exodus. Go back to Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14. What does Exodus 3.14 say? Go to 3.13, actually. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh in Hebrew. Yahweh. That's the name Jesus gave himself. All the way over in John 8.58. Two, what, more than that. About 1,400 years later, something like that. 1,400 years later. Think about that for a moment. Where is this Jesus that you claim was detached from everything, was quiet and unassuming and just a, a, big, a big hippie who just said, oh, it's all cool, man, it's all chill, let's just all relax and love each other. Good Lord, I mean, this is why I hate hippies. This is why, uh, you know, to me, that this is why I can't stand progressive Christians either. That's not what Jesus said. Our God is a warrior God. Jesus Christ is a warrior king. Our religion is a fighting faith. Those are fighting words. Never forget that. Never forget that Jesus himself was a warrior, born of a line of warriors. He is a direct descendant of King David on his mother's side. 
So do not tell me that our God is somehow meek and unassuming and detached. That is a Gnostic heresy. That is a modern-day heresy. That has nothing to do with the spirit of this day and the purpose of this day. Once again, our faith is a fighting faith. How do we fight? Well, I just before I did this podcast, actually, I got off the phone with a, a good friend of mine. Um, he's a long-time reader of my work. He goes by the handle Veritas on my site. And uh, he's a South Indian chap. Um, he's been through a, some very, very hard struggles in life. I mean, struggles that make mine look trivial by comparison. And he was telling me, and we were discussing this exact topic, Uh, this was good preparation for the podcast, and I really want to thank Veritas for um, the call and for the conversation. We spoke for about an hour before uh, I did this podcast. And um, we were catching up and we were chatting, and uh, we were talking about this issue of how ours is a, a warrior's faith. And we talked about how we fight. We fight not with weapons, although if we have to, we will. Because there are times when it is righteous and just to take up arms in defense of what we love. But we primarily fight through the spirit realm. This is the one place, this is the place where humanity is worst prepared. And it comes back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast about the nature of the spiritual realm, where we are as squalling, helpless infants surrounded by ravenous, terrifying forces. If you want a really good um, analogy that like, shows you in visual form what that world looks like, seriously, seriously, watch Stranger Things on Netflix. And I'm not saying that necessarily because Stranger Things is brilliant. It's not. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. There's a lot of problems with how it goes in this whole girl power bullshit. But... If you look at the way the upside down is depicted, and if you if you read um, or I think either read or watch Dr. Michael Heiser's breakdown of Stranger Things as a metaphor for the spirit realm, he does a brilliant job um, of of explaining it all, and he makes it very clear that the spiritual realm, oh, the uh, excuse me, the upside down in Stranger Things is a very good parallel for how we are in the spiritual world. In, the up, in, in Stranger Things, the upside down is it's a place where human physics doesn't make sense. And these terrifying creatures, these demogorgons and uh, mind flayers and just horrible, evil, terrifying creatures rule supreme. And they can kill you instantly, you know, immediately, the moment you are in that realm. Um, and they will do everything they can to attack you and destroy you in uh, either that realm or the material realm. But in the material realm, they can be harmed by human weapons. In the spiritual, re- in the in the upside down, it's much harder to hurt them. So that is exactly what it's like. When you enter into the spiritual realm, you are helpless. You need something and someone to stand with you, and that something, that someone, is God made flesh. It's Jesus. He picks you up, carries you, protects you, shields you. He provides you with the guiding light that you need to fight in that realm. That's his power. 
And as for um, the way that he approached the world, the way that he took on the world, think about the warrior's way. Um, if you go look up uh, Miyamoto Musashi, and you look at his, uh, his creed of the warrior, it's very important to go and, and look at this. And I remember um, writing a number of posts on the subject uh, about this exact issue. Um, if, we, if you go look up, there's, there's a couple of articles on my site which are about this. Um, there's a great picture related to this which summarizes uh, Miyamoto Musashi's philosophy in the 21 points. Accept everything just the way it is. Do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Do not, under any circumstances, depend on a partial feeling. Think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. Be detached from your desire your whole life long. Do not regret what you have done. Never be jealous. Never let yourself be saddened by a separation. Resentment and complaint are appropriate neither for oneself nor others. Do not let yourself be guided by the feeling of lust or love. In all things, have no preferences. Be indifferent to where you live. Do not pursue the taste of good food. Do not hold on to possessions you no longer need. Do not act following customary beliefs. Do not collect weapons or practice with weapons beyond what is useful. Do not fear death. Do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. Respect Buddha and the gods without counting on their help. You may abandon your own body, but you must preserve your honor. Never stray from the way. Tell me what exactly about that, other than, you know, some of the minor details, and they are relatively minor. What exactly in that set, in that list, is incompatible with Christianity? Tell me what exactly in that list is incompatible with what Jesus Christ preached. What did Jesus say? Do not be worried. Tomorrow will have enough worries for tomorrow. Today, let today's worries be sufficient for today. Be humble. Be humble before God. Do not be jealous. Do not covet, basically. Blessed are those who weep, for they will be comforted. Be grateful for your tests. Uh, do not be lustful. Do not demand, you know, basically love others, love your enemies, show them grace and kindness and compassion, give them a chance to repent. Do not be overly attached to material things. Give up what you have. Give even when it hurts. Do not be afraid of death, because I will conquer death for you. That's what he said. Do not, you know, enter through the narrow gate. Enter, enter through the narrow door. Walk the narrow path. That's what he said. So in what way is what Jesus said incompatible with the words of a pagan, an animist, who came about 1800 years after he died? The answer is, in no way is it incompatible. Once again, our God is a warrior God. Our Jesus is a warrior fighting for us. And that is the miracle of this day. 
And I hope I've illustrated that. I mean, I've rammed it home many, many times over the past 56 minutes or so. That's what I want you to think about on this day. And I want to end with a blessing um, and a prayer, really. I want to end by saying to everyone, we've had a horrible, horrible year. 2020 was the toughest year on in living memory. And I mean, if you've seen through my writings what I went through in 2018, you know I'm really saying that, you know, some, I'm saying something truthful here. 2020 was the worst year I can remember in a very long time. But I'm not unhappy today. This is the best Christmas I can remember in a long, long time. Not because there was anything particularly special about it. I didn't do anything special other than visit my aunt. And uh, that too, only because of a long and frankly stupid series of blunders, which I won't go into here, but you know, it was, it was interesting. But I feel happy. I feel good. I feel relaxed. I, I, I am enjoying this day because I'm going to be leaving here soon. That's part of it. And it's also because I'm just, I'm, I don't want to control anything that much anymore. I'm just happy to take things as they come right now. I'm happy to celebrate the day of our Lord. And it gives me such immense pleasure and joy to listen to real Christians singing their hearts out, like with that song that I posted up yesterday uh, from For King and Country. There are a couple of Australians, actually, believe it or not, um, singing a modernized version of Little Drummer Boy. Beautiful song. I must have listened to it like 20 times by now, maybe more. It's an incredible song. I'm just happy because this is the day of fulfillment of a promise. So let me end with a brief prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the gift that you gave us, the priceless gift of your beloved begotten Son. Thank you for this incredible journey that you have set us on to be reunited with you of our own free will. Let us always speak your truth. Let us always be in tune with what it is that you seek us to do, you ask us to do. Let us always seek out your wisdom and your guidance. And Lord, please instruct us and admonish us when we stray from your path and your light. In your name, most holy Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be a hard year ahead. Make no mistake. 2020 was rough. 2021 is going to be worse. But have faith. Rejoice. Because on this day, the greatest miracle of all time was revealed to us. And we can draw hope and inspiration from that miracle on this day and on every other day to follow. We have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing at all. The very powers of hell cannot overcome us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God bless you, my friends. God bless your families. And thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you for your continued patronage and your time. Please remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. 
and uh, we'll call it a wrap here. This is Didactic Mind, episode 61, One Bright Star to Guide Them. This is Didact, signing off.